We began uh, way back in 2017 when the church was first started, right in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and we worked our way all the way through the book of Genesis, and we worked our way up to and including Exodus 20, which is the Ten Commandments. And then what we've done is we've taken a break from consecutive exposition, and what we're doing is we're looking at the Old Covenant systematically as opposed to uh, consecutively. So we're, we're trying to look at themes and uh, uh, doctrines, and we're looking at specific laws and specific sections pertaining to the Old Covenant so that we can kind of wrap our minds around it. So rather than continuing with Exodus 21 and 22 and 23 and so forth, we've been bouncing around a little bit. What we're, what we're kind of doing, if I can draw an analogy, is we're kind of camping out at Sinai, trying to wrap our minds around the revelation that God gave to the Israelites there at Sinai before we pick up with, um, a, uh, with the journey from Sinai into the Promised Land. We have been uh, studying the Old Covenant uh, for, I don't know, a, a good while, at least, at least several months, but um, uh, it's been a little while since, since our last one, uh, probably a break of a couple months, or maybe even three months. Uh, if you want to go back and refresh your memory, or if you haven't heard the earlier sermons and you'd like to catch up, Everything's available on our website, crbcbarbados.com. And uh, it might be helpful to uh, go back and catch up on that if you did miss the first chunk of this series. But we began studying the tabernacle furniture a while back, and we're continuing in our study of the tabernacle furniture this evening. And we've moved from the innermost section of the tabernacle, which is called the Most Holy Place. It's the furthest west. We've moved outward and eastward toward the Holy Place. We've looked at the furniture of the Holy Place. And now we've moved eastward again and we're in the outer court. And next up in our study of the tabernacle furniture is the bronze altar, which is in the center of the outer court of the tabernacle, which we just read about in Exodus 27, 1 to 8. But before we get to that specifically, since it's been a while, let me refresh your memory about the floor plan of the tabernacle. The tabernacle as a whole was a rectangular type, rectangular tent type structure with walls on the north, south, east, and west, with a gate opening to the east. So someone entering the tabernacle would enter from the east and would move westward into the tabernacle and they would be first in the outer court. Then they would move westward still past the curtain into the holy place and then they would move westward still past another curtain into the very presence of God in the most holy place or the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. So there were basically three sections there were subdivisions of the overall rectangle with the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place, being the westernmost chamber of the tabernacle, and then a holy place just east of that, and then the outer core of the tabernacle furthest east, which would be the first place that you would find yourself once you entered the tabernacle from the east. 
And one of the things I pointed out a while back was that the journey westward into the most holy place symbolized a return westward back into the presence of God since God had banished the human race eastward out of Eden. There is significance even to the compass directions in the layout of the tabernacle. Mankind was cast out of the garden to the east, away from walking with God in the cool of the day. And so this approach westward was symbolic of a return and a recovery of the intimacy with God that mankind enjoyed in Eden. However, the further west that one progressed in the tabernacle, though it was closer to the presence of God, symbolically, the more stringent the requirements were, and the more restricted the access. So inside the holy place, only the priests could go. And into the most holy place, only the high priest can go. And he, but once a year. Into the outer court, however, the easternmost portion of the tabernacle, all the people of God are welcome to come. And that's where we are tonight, in this easternmost section of the tabernacle. And here, in the middle of the outer court, stood a bronze altar, which we read about in Exodus 27, verses 1 to 8, on which the vast majority of the animal sacrifices to God offered under the Old Covenant would take place. And this altar is the subject of our study tonight. So let's consider first the physical altar. We read here about cubits, but I don't know the last time that you tried to build something and measured it in cubits. As for me, I prefer inches and feet, or you might like to go yourself with centimeters and meters, depending on what you're accustomed to. But I don't think any of us have a tape measure that shows cubits. So it's a little unfamiliar to us. Let me put it like this. This altar was about five feet high, and it formed a seven foot by seven foot square, roughly. I'm speaking in rough terms, just so we can conceptualize. As viewed from above, it was a seven foot by seven foot square. It was hollow in the middle, and it had a grate that would sit about halfway down. So about two and a half feet from the upper lip of the altar, I'm, I'm about five foot four, so the altar would be somewhere like here. So about halfway down would be this grate that would, that would um, sit part of the way down from the lip, about two and a half feet high off the ground. And this grate was there so that oxygen and wood could get underneath the animal sacrifices to burn it. And yet the grate also helped make sure that the sacrifice itself wouldn't fall down into the very bottom. The altar had four horns, one on each corner, which the sacrifice would be tied to in order to keep it from shifting out of its place as it was being burned. The altar was constructed of wood overlaid with bronze, and so it wouldn't be as heavy as a solid bronze altar would be, but the bronze gave it strength which it otherwise wouldn't have if it was made entirely of wood. And the wood 
if it was not overlaid with bronze, of course, would just burn up. Thus, the design of this altar was very practical. By virtue of the wood core, as opposed to being solid bronze, it was light enough to be carried by probably eight men, probably two at the end of each pole, uh, most commentators think, but possibly four men. In any case, it was light enough that when they slipped the poles uh, into it and hoisted it up on their shoulders, the men could actually carry it, which if it was solid bronze, they wouldn't have been able to. So whenever the Israelites traveled, poles would be slipped into it and it would be put up on the men's shoulders and they would walk with it wherever the Israelites traveled until the tabernacle was set up again. Because it was not solid bronze, that was possible. And yet, by virtue of the bronze, it could withstand the almost constant barrage of animal sacrifices, which surely would have been offered on it day by day in a camp the size of the Israelites, numbering over a million people. You imagine this thing would probably just have fire on it, almost nonstop. Now, that's the physical altar, just so we can picture it in our mind's eye. What did the altar signify? What was it a copy and a shadow of? Since we know from Hebrews 9.24, this is kind of the lens through which we're looking at the tabernacle and its furnishings. Hebrews 9.24 tells us that all these things are copies and shadows of heavenly things. And of course, we know from the book of Hebrews that the heavenly things pertain to Christ Jesus and his ministry. So, what did the altar signify? We're going in with the assumption that it signified something. That it wasn't just a randomly placed, pragmatic, randomly designed item, but that God intended for it to signify something the way that uh, he signified aspects of the ministry of Christ and the person of Christ through the other tabernacle furnishings as well. Answering this question will take up the remainder of our time this evening, but we're going to gradually work towards the answer instead of me front-loading it to you right now. And I'd like to point out to you first that the altar is of greater importance than the sacrifice that is offered up. Matthew chapter 23. Turn there in your Bibles, please. And look at verses 18 and 19. Jesus is speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees. And he says, And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his own. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? The, the implication of this, it's not stated explicitly, it's stated uh, as a rhetorical question. When you say to somebody, why would you do that? The implication is you shouldn't have done that. This is the sort of question that Jesus is ask, asking here. Which is greater, the altar or pardon me, the gift, or the altar that makes the gift sacred. What he's saying to these guys is, you've got it backwards. 
You're saying that if you swear by the altar, it's nothing. But if you swear by the gift, it's something. And he's basically saying you got it backwards because the altar is greater than the gift. Now, we know by now from lots of different sermons that I've preached and from our study of the Old Covenant specifically, that the various sacrifices offered under the Old Covenant foreshadowed Christ Jesus. That's one of the most basic types of symbolism that we find in terms of how the Old Covenant foreshadows Christ Jesus in his person and his work. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin, as Hebrews says, but they foreshadowed what? The blood of the Lord Jesus, by which we are truly cleansed. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, the gifts that were offered on the altar signified Jesus. And yet Jesus himself teaches us in Matthew 23 that the altar is greater than the gift. This may strike us as odd. Since we're accustomed to thinking about the typology of the animal sacrifices, but we're not so accustomed to thinking about the typology of the tabernacle furniture. It might even sound somewhat blasphemous to us at first if someone had simply said to us that the altar is greater than the gift and Matthew 23 hadn't come to our mind. We would think to ourselves, what could be greater than Christ? We know that the animal sacrifices offered there signified Christ. And what could be greater than Christ? So if we hadn't read Matthew 23 and heard it from Jesus' own mouth that the altar is greater than the gift, it might even sound blasphemous. But we have it straight from our Lord's mouth. The altar is greater than the gift. And yet, Jesus goes on to teach us in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 20 that the altar and the gift comprise a unified whole. Look at verse 20. Whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and everything on it. So the altar and the gift may be distinguished from one another, but not separated. Now let me, let me just expand on that distinction. R.C. Sproul once explained the, the, the distinction like this. If I distinguish between your soul and your body then I have simply helped break down what you are. You are a composition of a soul and of a body. And I've made the point to you that your body is not the same thing as your soul, and your soul is not the same thing as your body. So you may distinguish between soul and body. But Sproul said, if I separate your soul from your body, I've killed you. You understand? Distinguishing and separating are two different things. So we may distinguish the altar from the gift and the gift from the altar, but in Jesus' mind, we can't separate the altar and the gift. Whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. 
So, in Jesus' mind, the altar and the gift present us with one unified picture, one unified symbol, one, one unified point of typology that it foreshadows a single thing. Remember that the Israelites were not allowed to kill any animals, let alone offer a sacrifice other than at the temple, other than at the tabernacle of the Lord, according to the beginning of Leviticus 17. We covered that in a previous sermon, so it won't be later the point, but you can look it up if you want. They weren't even allowed to slaughter an animal anywhere else, let alone offer up a religious sacrifice anywhere else, but at the altar. And so Gifts could not be offered apart from the altar. Okay? And the altar, of course, by itself, without a sacrifice, is also an incomplete picture. You can't have a gift without an altar, according to Leviticus 17. And of course, we know you can't have an altar without a gift. So just as the table for the bread of the presence and the lampstand in the holy place were distinguishable items, but they were intended by God to function together, with the lampstand casting its light upon the table and forming one symbol. You can go back and listen to the sermon I preached on that if you're curious what I'm referring to. But just as those two distinguishable items the table for the bread of the presence and the lampstand, though they were distinguishable items, they were intended to function together and to present a unified picture. So the altar and the gift are distinguishable items, but they're intended to be understood together. The altar and the gift together form one picture. So what is the single unified picture that the altar and the gift presents to us. It cannot be that the gift represents Christ and the altar represents the cross. For the wood to which Jesus was nailed is not greater than Christ himself. Nor could we posit that the altar is something entirely other and unrelated to Christ. For we know that the gifts offered on it very obviously signify and foreshadow the work of Christ Jesus himself, substituting himself for the atonement of God's people. And we know from what we just covered that the altar and the gifts on it form one indivisible whole in Christ's mind. The altar and everything on it are one in the mind of Jesus. So, what does the altar signify? The correct answer, I believe, as to what the single unified picture that the altar and the gift presents to us then, is this. The bronze altar and the gift on it represent to us the God-man dying for his people. Let me explain this. Many commentators explain the significance of the bronze 
composition of the altar being as follows, that the gold was reserved for the more inward sections of the tabernacle, closer to the center of the symbolic presence of God. So just as we have the bronze medal and the silver medal and the gold medal in the Olympics, and the gold is greater than the bronze, so many commentators reason that in the outer court you have bronze, and then in the holy place and in the most holy place you move towards gold, because that's closer to where God's symbolic presence is. And there probably is some significance to that, since there is also a basin in the outer court, which is uh, for washing, which is also made of bronze. So we'll come to that, uh, God willing, next week. However, there is another explanation for the bronze, which I believe is on point. And the other explanation is this. Bronze was durable enough to withstand the constant heat of almost continuous animal sacrifices from a camp comprising over a million people. And though you'll read it last in more modern commentaries, theologians of old thought this point significant. Here's Matthew Henry. This brazen, that is bronze, it's just an old word for bronze, this brazen altar was a type of Christ dying to make atonement for our sins. The wood would have been consumed by the fire from heaven if it had not been secured by the brass. Nor could the human nature of Christ have borne the wrath of God if it had not been supported by a divine power. And John Gill says, Christ's human nature is the sacrifice and his divine nature the altar. His divine nature is greater than the human, is the support of it, which sanctifies it. A modern living theologian, Stephen Wellam, explains how and why we use this sort of language theologically, though not commenting on Exodus 27 and the bronze altar particularly. Wellam says, and I quote, traditionally the church has used the community Cathio idiomata, communication of attributes, to explain the relationship between Christ's two natures and their union in the Son. Although various conceptions of the communicatio have been developed, the Church has agreed on at least two points. Each nature retained its own attributes. The attributes of each nature are predicated of the Son because He is the subject or person of both natures. So let me try to break that down. The divine nature and the human nature of Christ are distinguishable but not separable in the person of the Son. So just as you have a body and a soul which are distinguishable, but not separable, right? And just as the altar is one uh, thing and the gift is another thing, which may be distinguished from one another, but not separated from one another, right? 
we use the same paradigm to talk about the two natures in the one person of Christ Jesus. That Christ Jesus has a divine nature, and Christ Jesus has a human nature, which are distinguishable from one another, but which may never again be separated. By virtue of the Incarnation, there is one person, the Son of God, Christ Jesus, with two natures. We ascribe to each nature the attributes which are proper to it, but we may speak of the person doing anything that the person does, even if the act itself belongs more properly to one nature or the other. Let me try to um, explain this by way of example. In Acts chapter 20, we read this. Paul is speaking to the elders of the church in Ephesus, and he says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Well, does God have blood? No. It's not proper to the divine nature to bleed. And yet, we recognize because of the divinity of Christ, that the Son of God suffered and shed his blood and died. And so Paul is speaking about God shedding his blood in Acts chapter 20. This is the sort of thing that we mean when we say we can predicate an action of the person, Christ Jesus, the Son of God, even if an action is more proper to his human nature, as is the case in Acts chapter 20, it's more proper to a human nature to bleed than to a divine nature, but because it is the one person, the Son of God, who bled and died, we can say that God purchased the church with his own blood. Christ's, as it pertains to the cross, we say that Christ suffered according to his human nature, and yet did not suffer according to his divine nature. Because his human nature is passable, and his divine nature is impassable. So each nature retains its own attributes, as Wellum says, and yet we may speak of Christ, the Son of God, being crucified and dying, because he is one and the same person. Which is why we can sing, as we just did, God eternal humbled to the grave. So back to the bronze altar. <clears throat> Without the godness of Christ, if I may put it that way, the wrath of God would have obliterated the man. Or it would have exhausted his finite being eternally in hell with the punishment of a trillion sins. But, without the manness of Christ, if I can put it this way, the wrath of God would not have been poured out upon an appropriate substitute. So, the wrath of God was poured out on the Christ, who was at the same time divine and impassable, and human and passable. 
an imperishable bronze altar with a perishable gift on it, so to speak. So the perfect being capable of bearing in himself divine wrath and yet a suitable substitute for human sinners is offered up for the atonement of his people at Calvary. Bless God for his wisdom. The question arises at this juncture, however, could the ancient Israelites have ever picked up on that sentence? This is why I think you don't read this sort of thing as much in the more modern commentaries, because there's a trend in the academy, in our seminaries and so forth, to really heavily, heavily press a hermeneutic or a method of interpretation in which the scripture can't mean more than the original hearers would have understood it to mean. But we know that though we should consider that, and though that should factor in, that it, it did have meaning in its own time and place, we know that God's revelation is progressive and that later scripture can shed light on earlier scripture. So I don't think we're, we're bound by that hermeneutic the way that some in the academy today really feel that we just can't stray beyond that. We recognize that God embedded in the Old Covenant multi-layered and multifaceted symbolism, typology. It's rich with, with foreshadowing and images. It anticipates the work of Christ much later on. And the older writers are certainly not afraid to read the scripture in a Christocentric, Christ-centered, Christotelic, Christ as the end, way. Because the scripture itself gives us that lens also. That all of these things testify of me, Christ Jesus uh, says in John chapter 5. <clears throat> so, first of all, I would say it's not necessary that the ancient Israelites could have understood the symbolism of this in the same level of detail as we can tonight. I would, I would first of all say that. But secondly, I would say this. The thoughtful Israelite could perceive that there needed to be a strong and sufficient bearer of a trillion sins. People weren't dumb back then. They had the same nature as us. So just as... Just as the author of Hebrews indicates that the thoughtful believer should have and therefore could have known that animal sacrifices didn't really take away sin because they kept having to be offered. Right? The author of Hebrews says they should have known. Just give me a quick.
Just as the author of Hebrews indicates that the thoughtful Old Testament believer should have, and therefore could have known, that animal sacrifices didn't really take away sin. Simply by observing and seeing that the sacrifices needed to be offered time and time again. Like I said, if you, if you call a plumber and he fixes your pipe, and then it's still leaking, and then he comes back and fixes it again, and then it's still leaking, and he fixes it again, has he really fixed it? Likewise, if a sacrifice takes away sin, but then you need to offer it again, and then it takes away sin, and then you need to offer it again, and then it takes away sin, and then you need to offer it again. Did it really take away sin? This is the way that the author of Hebrews talks about how we should know, simply from Old Testament revelation, that the blood of bulls and goats didn't take away sin. He expects that we're going to think he expects that the ancient Israelites would have thought and would have inferred and would have deduced that the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin. So, the thoughtful Old Testament believer should have and could have used common sense to discern the fact that one mere man couldn't possibly bear the wrath of God for the sins of the human race. A predicament would therefore arise in the thoughtful Old Testament believer's mind. A non-human sacrifice cannot take away sin. But a human could never bear the punishment deserved for a trillion sins. Now I'm not suggesting that this would lead them to conceive of the Incarnation, or that they would thereby, according to that thought process, gaze at the bronze altar and realize that, oh, there must be coming a God-man who is one person in two natures, and write theology of the hypostatic union back then so long ago. I'm not suggesting that at all. But what I'm suggesting is that there could have been and should have been a thought process that would lead the thoughtful Old Testament Israelite to anticipate the dilemma of needing a man to atone for human sins, and yet at the same time needing more than a man. That dilemma wouldn't be resolved in the Old Testament believer's mind. But when Christ showed up on the scene and claimed to be from above and claimed to be the Son of the Father and yet born of Mary, the Old Testament believer thoughtful, anticipating the dilemma should have blessed God for his wisdom. Ah, this is how God has resolved the dilemma. Christ's statements about his origin and his divine nature would have signaled to the thoughtful Old Testament believer that God has found a way. And indeed he has. Jesus was fully man, is fully man, and yet more than a man. 
crown him the Son of God before the world's beginning. And ye who tread where he hath trod, crown him the Son of Man. As the Son of Man, Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As the Son of God, Jesus was the bronze altar undergirding the Lamb and bearing it up. Two natures, one person. Just as the bronze altar and the gift offered on it form one indivisible picture, and yet may be distinguished from one another, so the two natures of Christ may be distinguished from one another, and yet form one indivisible person. What is the takeaway for us? As with the rest of our tabernacle study, this ought to make us more informed in our worship with respect to the multifaceted glory of Christ and His work on our behalf. But more than that, it also ought to make us more trusting this point specifically. Let me explain. Let's imagine that there was a man named John Doe who died a few years back and I told you that his death was significant in that he bore the wrath of God on behalf of mankind and it utterly obliterated him. That's why he died. Well, how could you ever even know if it was true or not? It would not be a verifiable claim. He's gone. John Doe is just gone. Was there significance in his death or not? Did the wrath of God obliterate him or did he just die after the manner of mankind? Was there any significance? We just wouldn't. He's gone. He's dead. It consumed him. Right? But with the death of Jesus, after he supposedly, and I'm not, I'm not saying supposedly, I'm just in the way of thinking, after he supposedly bore the wrath of God, there was still apparently something of him not obliterated by the sacrifice. Because three days later he came out of the tomb. So on the one hand, he died. On the other hand, the cross was not the end of him. The fire of God's judgment consumed the human nature so to speak. He died. It was the end of the man. But according to his divine nature, he bore the fire of God's judgment without dying. The Son of God didn't stop existing, you realize, when Jesus said it is finished. The Son of God persisted after he yielded his spirit. And he took up his human life again, as he said in John chapter 10 that he would. I have authority to lay down my life and to take it up again. The lambness of Christ, if I can put it that way, assures us that we have an atoning sacrifice. The Son of God really died for our sins. 
He, the man, Christ Jesus, the one mediator between God and man, as Paul puts it to Timothy, the man, Christ Jesus, really died, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lambness of Christ assures us that we have an atoning sacrifice. The brassness of Christ, if I can put it that way, passing through the fire of God's judgment and remaining still. There was something to the Son of God that was not consumed at Calvary, but remained and persisted. Took up his human life again. The brassness of Christ assures us that we have a living Savior who wasn't obliterated at the cross, who wasn't annihilated, who didn't just go the way of all mankind, but there was something still there after atonement was made. He sufficiently and efficaciously offered up himself, died and was resurrected and lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him. The brassness of Christ, if I can put it that way, makes the difference between having a dead man who we suppose and hope might have saved us, but he's dead. Versus having a living, resurrected Savior who we saw bear the fire and yet still remains afterward. The brassness of Christ, if I may put it that way, is what enables us to sing, crown him the Lord of love who triumphed or the grave and rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. His glories now we sing, who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring, and lives that death may die. You see, the fire of God's wrath would have been the last word for a mere man. But the brassness of Christ means that he rose victorious after burying the fire. He died eternal life to bring, but he triumphed for the grave. He rose victorious. And he lives now forevermore that death may die. Let's trust him then and sing of his glories now in this once. Crown him with many things.